So Zechariah chapter 14. If you're struggling to find it, it's page 958 in the church, Bible, church Bibles, 958. Um, I know it's been tricky to find every week uh, as a little one of the minor prophets towards the end of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 14. Let, let's, let's hear God speak to us through his word. <clears throat> a day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. I will gather all of the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, and half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. And you will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. And you will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all of the holy ones with him. On that day, there will neither be sunlight or, nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow from Jerusalem, half of it to the east to the Dead Sea, and half of it to the west to the Mediterranean Sea, in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. The whole land from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem, will be like Arabah. But Jerusalem will be raised up high from the Benjamin gate to the side of the first gate, to the corner gate and from the tower of Hanael to the royal wine presses, and will remain in its place. It will be inhabited, never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. This is the plague with which the Lord will strike all of the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day, people will be stricken by the Lord with great panic. They will seize each other by the hand and attack one another. Judah too will fight at Jerusalem. The wealth of all the surrounding nations will be collected great quantities of gold and silver and clothing. A similar plague will strike the horses and the mules and the camels and donkeys and all the animals in those camps. Then the survivors of all of the nations that attack Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. If any of the people of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, they will have no reign. And if Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no reign. And the Lord will bring on them a plague he inflicts on the nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. On that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses and the cooking pots in the, house, in the Lord's house will be like sacred bowls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty, and all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. And on that day, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. Amen. This is God's word.
Um, as William said, we've reached the end of uh, our series in Zechariah, and we've now ended at um, this prophecy of a great ap apocalyptic battle, uh, as I'm sure all of you were hoping and couldn't wait for me to get to the part where I read about eyes rotting in people's sockets and the tongues rotting in people's mouths. I'm sure that's what you want just before your lunch. Um, and I'm going to repeat what I said whenever we really first got into this book, which is this book is, is a different sort of literature than the sort of things we're used to reading. We're used to reading quite factual accounts, history, newspapers, novels, biographies. And often whenever we read these passages, we can begin to think, oh, this is, this is what we need to look out for. And so if you see somebody with a gammy eye one day, you're like, clearly the rot is coming. But that's not what's going on here. Um, one of the commentators that I read in preparation for this week had a really helpful way of describing this, this passage. Um, he was uh, saying that whenever we read apocalyptic literature, which is the sort of literature this is, it means talking about the end times, instead of reading it as like a blow-by-blow -blow account, it's, it's far more helpful to read this as almost like a, a sketch, a rough outline. And, and, and in saying that, I want us to look at what is the sketch going on here. What is the big picture? It can be very easy for us, whenever we read passages like this, to want to get into the nitty-gritty and be like, well, what is this river? What is this mountain? Is everyone going to need to wear glasses after their eyes have rotted? You know, we can get into all of those nitty-gritty details and we can miss the point. And the main point we see working out here in this passage is something that I think all of you probably picked up in your process of reading. God's people start off in a bad situation. God comes, and in the end, God's people have victory and solace in him. That's, that's the big picture. We start out in a bad place, God arrives, God wins. And that is really the big picture that Zechariah is trying to get over to us. We can get lost in the nitty gritty, but we want to focus on the big picture. And as we do that this morning, I want to just really simply break this down into the problem that we see with God's people at the start of this passage, and then working to see what solutions God provides to that problem throughout the rest of the, the text. So the first thing we see is the problem. If you look down with me in the opening couple of verses of this chapter, it says, today if the Lord is coming, Jerusalem will, when your possessions will be plundered and divided within your very walls, I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the woman raped. It's, it's a moment where there is great pain and suffering upon God's people. But what's really interesting is usually whenever you read stories about pain and suffering in the Bible, um, what will happen is you'll then read a postscript from God saying, but if you would return to me, but we don't hear that. Or, or we read, if because of your great wickedness or because you have wandered from me, I will bring this. But that's not what's going on here. We're not told the reason why God's people suffer here. We're not told. We just know that they do. And as I say that, hopefully you're beginning to see how this passage in some way fits the reality of your Christian experience. The gospel that we believe is not one that says when you become a Christian, everything goes okay and everything becomes rosy. And many of us know that far too painfully to be true than we would ever like to admit. We know that as Christians, trusting in Jesus, trying to be faithful, trying our best to serve God, that we suffer and we have pain. And I think especially over the past two years, um, 
as I've kind of visited around a lot of you folks, one of the things I've just picked up on is not necessarily that people have had great traumas. Some of, some of you have. Some of you have had horrible things happen in the past couple of years, and it's been very difficult to process. The majority of us haven't. But I would say for the majority of us, what we all feel at the minute is a collective tiredness and a weariness of having went through maybe not one great final traumatic event, but death by a thousand paper cuts or a thousand restrictions or a thousand of family birthday, birthdays that were missed, of friends who we've lost contact with, of folks who we just aren't in touch with anymore because we don't see them anymore. We have all went through a series of loss and pain over the past two years. That's a reality that I think we all know far too well than we would ever like to admit. And so many of us, I think, are, are just weary having come through that. And there can be part of us that wants to almost say the prayer of the psalmist who cries out, why God? Why would you allow this to happen? This is one of the oldest objections to Christianity, which is if God is good and God is great, why do bad things happen to good people? It's one of the oldest problems that we have as Christians trying to understand why, why does suffering exist in a world created by a good God? Now, I think we often want the answer why because you know, we're in a Western and post-enlightenment era, so we often want to think with our heads. We don't want to be told why are things like this. And you know, we can give you the answers. What state do our first parents fall, as the catechism asks us, and the responses our first parents fell into in a state of sin and misery. And whilst that is a great piece of knowledge to have in our heads, it, it often doesn't really address the feeling of pain that we have in our hearts. And this passage, I think, is God trying to speak to us and show how even when his people suffer, he's still with them. The why can be helpful, but in the same way, whenever you're sick and you, you're sick and you go to the doctor, you don't just want him to tell you, why are you sick? You want him to tell you that you'll get better. And that's what this passage does. It's not telling us why we're sick or why we're suffering, but it tells us that we will get better and gives us a glimpse of how things might get better. We're given a bit of hope. Maybe you're listening to this and thinking, well, like, I don't believe in God, and this is partially my reason why, because why on earth would a good God allow suffering and pain? And you may think that pain in the world is a, is a problem that only Christians have to deal with because we're the only ones who believe in, it, in a good God who's in control of everything. But if you look around you, you'll know that we live in a culture that's struggling to deal with suffering and pain. Um, every sociological journal or article that you will read at the minute will talk about how mental health problems are on the rise. Um, I read a horrible, horrible article in the New Yorker this past week talking about how it is even rising amongst young children. And I won't go into the details of it, but it's pretty grim. And I think sometimes our rhetoric with that is, well, the reason that people are more depressed now or more anxious now is because we now know what to call depression and anxiety. And whilst that's maybe partially true, it doesn't answer the full question. Sociologists are beginning to say that our modern society is perhaps one of the worst societies to go through pain and suffering in. Because we live in a society that tells us on the one hand that our lives are nothing more than a cosmic accident whenever an explosion happened several million years ago and stars 
bursts, sending matter across the universe, and we are then the substance of the carbon that was produced by those stars bursting. And so, really, we are just an accident that happened from an explosion, and our lives are nothing more than chemical reactions that will go on and on and on with no real meaning or no real purpose until eventually the sun that we are orbiting entirely burns up and we are sucked into the black hole that it leaves. That's really what the secular worldview holds in one hand. And then on the other hand, we'll try to tell us, but you need to have really good self-confidence and doesn't see the contradictory nature of those two things. We live in a world that is trying to tell you you have no meaning and you have no purpose and simultaneously then trying to say, but you need to believe in yourself. And it leaves us searching and clambering for ourselves to bring ourselves up by the bootstraps to make ourselves feel better. In a world that tells us your life is meaningless, so eat, drink, and be merry, we then have a huge problem whenever we feel like we can't eat, drink, and be merry because we're being robbed of the purpose of our entire lives. The culture that we are living It isn't just a culture that is now recognizing mental health problems, it is a culture that has been producing them. There's two psychologists that wrote a book that came out last year um, called Restless. Uh, It was a married couple called Benjamin and Janice uh, Silver's story. And they were really addressing this problem square on. Why Why is our society so unhappy? And in the conclusion to this book, they wrote these words. They said, learning to perceive the height of our existence, as well as its breadth, is what can can transform our hectic dabbling in life to one of steady purpose. Learning to conceive the height of our existence. Learning to realize that we were made not by accident, but with purpose and design for a reason towards a goal that our suffering and our pain is not in vain. It is not just random chemical reactions in our brain, but it has a purpose and a meaning and a substance to it, realizing the height of our existence so that we may no longer dabble in life, but work with steady purpose. This couple were actually a Christian couple, even though what they were publishing was published by the Princeton University Press. And what they were obviously trying to get us to see is we need purpose. We need meaning. We need some reason to live for other than just our own enjoyment. And this is what our faith offers us. It doesn't offer us a cheap answer or an easy, quick fix solution, but it offers us a meaning. And that meaning is summed up so well, and you know what I'm about to say it in the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is our chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy him. To enjoy him. It is not that our pain robs us of our purpose, but it is something that we endure while our purpose is worked out. And this passage shows us that in three really great ways in the solution. The first thing we see is God's presence. If you look down with me in verse 4, We read that in the midst of this great calamity that's happening, the people of God, and these these nations have gathered against Jerusalem to destroy it. It says that on that day, his feet, meaning God's feet, will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split into two from east to west, forming a great valley, and half the mountain moving north and half moving south. And you will flee by my mountain valley, and it will extend to Azel. Now, what does this mean? 
It means God's feet would touch the earth. Now, whenever we hear about God's feet touching the earth, we, we probably don't associate that with very much. Um, if you think of the temple that would sit in Jerusalem, the place where in the Old Testament God was said to dwell, within that there's a place called the Holy of Holies, which is the most holy court. And inside the holy court is the Ark of the Covenant, which we all know from Indiana Jones. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant, that great big golden box was said to be the footstool of God, okay? So the, what makes the temple special is that it's where God's feet rest upon the earth. It's where God touches the earth. But this passage doesn't say this is where God's feet touch the earth. It says God's feet touch the earth in a very different place. It says God's feet touch the earth in the Mount of Olives. I'm sure we've all heard the Mount of Olives. We'll be familiar with the phrase, even if we couldn't name why we know it. And the reason we know the Mount of Olives is because it's where Jesus taught his disciples. It's where he offered up his last prayer. It's where he was betrayed. The place where God touches the earth. It's a place where our Savior is betrayed. The reason why that gives us hope is that so often whenever we think about God, I think we talk about him as if he's some high-up celestial Santa Claus deciding who's on the good list and who's on the naughty list. When really his feet touched the earth and felt the sand in between his toes the same way your feet feel the sand in between your toes. Who cried at a funeral the same way you have cried at funerals, who would have sat at bedsides of loved ones who were in pain or who were sick the same way that you have, who was betrayed by friends the same way some of you perhaps have felt betrayed, who died the death that we as humans die. We worship a God who rather than fleeing from our suffering became human and experienced human pain and suffering. No other religion makes this claim. You know, if in Buddhism, the Buddha goes out to find enlightenment because he's trying to escape the pain of the society that he saw around him. Allah in Islam is one of their core tenets is that he is one and he is one to the point where he is completely cut off and unaffected by the world around him. And as Christians, we do not believe in a God who flees suffering and we do not believe in a God who insulates himself against suffering, but we believe in a God who became flesh, flesh so that he could suffer and know what we are going through. We do not suffer alone, but we suffer before a God who knows what we are putting up with, who knows the pain that we are bearing and knows the weariness we feel. We know a God who is not far off but a God who is present with us even when we suffer, who is not there trying to say, I told you so, but is there to be with us in the midst of us, to be a shoulder to cry on, to be somebody to weep with. The second thing we see in this passage is that there's a plan. There we go. If you look down with me at verse nine, We read that God comes down to earth, his feet touch the earth, he creates a valley for his people to escape from, he then goes out and fights for his people, and we read after that in verse 9, the Lord will be king over the whole earth, and on that day there will be one God, or one Lord, and his name the only name. What that means is that on this wonderful day when all these things happen, there will only be one king over all of the earth, and it will be the Lord, it will be God. 
to the point where the terms Lord, King, and God will become synonymous. They will be like one name. What does a king do? A king issues decrees. And the decrees of God, the workings of God, the things that God wants to see, his plan is to work all things for his glory. Even our smallest details of our lives are being used by God to shape us for his glory. There is nothing so small or insignificant that God does not see it. There is no pain too trivial or small from the stone in your shoe to the pain in your back. God sees the pain and the suffering that we go through and he is using all of it for his glory. Now, you may ask, why? Why is that good news? Well, I think it's good news to think about it in this way. On that wonderful day, whenever we enter into his presence and pain becomes but a long forgotten and distant memory, how much greater will it be knowing that existence of perfection, being freed from the pains that we felt on this earth? How much greater will the feeling of being free from sin feel whenever we've experienced its curse for so long? How much greater will the glory of God be whenever we see what he has saved us from and brought us into? How much greater will that be? He's working all things for that glory to show the beauty of his presence and the beauty of his holiness that we might bask in it. You might say that this is maybe a wee bit well-wishing, But the reality is is that all of us believe in some way that there is some arc to our lives. You know, how many of us have friends who, even though they would never use the word God, they will talk about fate or the universe or they will say things like, well, you know, everything happens for a reason. We all believe our lives are created for some purpose and towards some end in some sort of plan. And that plan is the one that God is using you in even your darkest moments and even your your smallest moments to do all things for his glory. And finally, we see there's a promise. If you look down with me then in the last couple of verses in verse 20, it says, on that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like sacred bowls in front of the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty and all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. This might sound, sound really weird, I'm aware, but what's being talked about here is that the things that were the holiest things in all of ancient Israel, which would have been the, the paraphernalia used to offer sacrifices in the temple, saying that on that day, they will become like cooking pots. There'll be no difference between the loftiest, highest bowl that gets used to burn incense in the temple and the bowl that you eat your porridge out of in the morning. The sacred and the secular will collapse into one so that there is only only just things before the face of a holy God that's in his presence. To the point where even the bells on the horse's necks, something as small and trivial as that, will have holy to the Lord inscribed upon them. This is the promise of our future. This is our promise, that there will come a day 
when what we know and feel on this earth, the pain and the trials and the sufferings that we know, will peel away and be collapsed into the holiness of God as we bask in his presence. And we delight to simply sit in the warmth and the glow of his glory. This is our promise that it will come to pass. This is the end we're working towards. This is the hope we're striving towards. This is the thing that we can hang our hopes on, that we have been created for something in the future, that we may enjoy his glory and enjoy his promises and bask in that greatness and glory on that day when he comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news that you have created us for yourselves and that our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. Father, help us to be in wonder of what you've put before us. Help us to endure the pain and the sufferings that we feel in this life, knowing the glory that awaits us. Would we count all things not worth comparing to that glory that awaits us? For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.